we continue our sermon series that we started last week, On Earth As It Is In Heaven. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that. Go ahead and check it out. If, uh, if that's something you've not ever done before, you can find the sermons all on our website. You can also find them on iTunes. You can have like a podcast subscription. It'll just send it to you every Sunday. Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. I shouldn't say that because it's not everywhere, I'm sure. But it's a lot of places. You can go get it there. So, um, and then we should, we should actually talk to the podcast people who listen to it online, right? If you're, if you're listening to this, this is weird because we're in the room, but they're not, okay? If you're listening to this and you're in the area, I see open seats and so you should come visit us. If you're not in the area, well, there are open homes and they should probably just move here, right? Okay, we agree. So uh, half of Texas is moving this way next week. Good luck. Um, the question we're asking this week is what does it mean uh, to truly live on earth as scripture intended? We asked this question last week, and, and we talked about heavenly hospitality. What does it mean when Jesus says, pray in this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What does that actually look like? Is that just a good idea, or is that something that like, we're actually supposed to do? And so last week we talked about what does it mean to be welcoming, uh, to have heavenly hospitality in our everyday lives. Uh, we also use this uh, illustration, this kind of meta metaphor for the whole thing that I'm, I'm going to say again because I think it makes sense to me that as Western people, we grow up in a way that we, we learn, 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 and then we do what we, what we learned. And Jesus grew up in a very different culture than us, and for Jesus, the, the way of apprenticeship and the way of um, Jewish culture was you, you do it so as to learn it. And so we are in a college town where people come and they want to get more education and more education and more education so that eventually they'll be experts and be able to do the thing that they got educated to do. And what you see so often in scripture is in an Eastern society, you were encouraged to, it's on the job training. And just get out there and do it. And in doing it, you'll learn it. In doing it, it'll get into your bones and then you'll actually know it. And so what the, the metaphor we used was it's like cooking. If you give, you want to teach a child to cook, you don't give them the Julia Child cookbook, a big old dusty thing and go, go read that. And the next day they come downstairs after waking up in the morning and they read the book all night and they, they go, gosh, I just love to cook. Like it would never happen. We would never expect that. In order to teach a child to love to cook, we say you have to get their hands in the dough and you have to get them in the kitchen. And you buy the little apron and you, you give them a love of doing. And that's how they actually learn in the first place. And so when we're talking about on earth as it is in heaven, what we're aiming for is how do we get active in doing the things that God has called us to do? And in doing so, then how do those things begin to soak into our heart and soak into our mind and, and kind of pervade our every day? So if last week was about welcoming, having heavenly hospitality in our everyday lives, this week we ask the question, welcome who and how? Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman, he says, has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. The line that we want to focus on today is this line, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This wasn't a compliment. 
The Pharisees are the righteous people, the holy people, and they're looking at Jesus who's mixing with the unholy people, with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they're looking at Jesus, and, and it's an insult to go, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, as if that would make him less attractive to those who were being drawn to him. We see that, and we, we actually, thankfully, see something a little different when we see he welcomes sinners and eats with them. We see a revolutionary Jesus who took religion of the day and turned it on its head. Jesus is attacking image-based religion, this kind of, this outward righteousness that if you do all the right things and you look a certain way of holiness, then, then that's, that's what it's about. That's what God will approve. And Jesus says that has nothing to do with what God wants. Jesus is this incredible teacher not interested in religious people. And for religious people who are following this incredible teacher and who are listening to this incredible teacher who speaks with an authority far beyond himself, this is deeply troubling for them. In another place in Scripture, Jesus called them hypocrites. He said that they were like someone who, who shines the outside of the cup but not the inside. Imagine going to a friend's house and they, they offer you coffee and they hand you this gleaming white porcelain coffee cup and you look on the inside and it's green and moldy and, and you'd be like, what's that about? But he says that's what this religious kind of life is like. It's about looking really great on the outside and yet on the inside nothing's fixed. He called them whitewashed tombs, which is one of my favorite insults. Jesus has lots of good insults when you read the Bible. One of my favorite ones is whitewashed tombs, which is him basically saying they're beautiful bags of death. Hey, you beautiful bags of death. You're looking good on the outside, but your bones are all dry and brittle. There's no life in you because a whitewashed tomb is just that. Jesus is speaking against this life of religion, this life of self-righteousness, this life of cleaning the outside, but the inside's unchanged. Jesus is building a faith community of something different. Jesus is building an upside-down kingdom made with inside-out people. He's building an upside-down kingdom with inside-out people that he's no longer worried about what the outside looks like. He's worried about what the heart looks like. And in doing that, he's upending the whole system that's been created before him. Jesus is building a faith community that seeks outsiders, the lost people, the imperfect people, you might as well have a sign, Imperfect People Wanted. I would love that sign. I'm going to put that sign in the church. Imperfect People Wanted. Perfect need not apply. Because if you're perfect, what do you need Jesus for? Jesus is interested in the lost being found. And when he talks about the lost being found, he says there's rejoicing in heaven. Five times in this passage, he says that there's joy in heaven over the rejoicing. There's rejoicing over the finding of the lost. There's rejoicing over the coin that's found. There's rejoicing when something lost is found. What we don't even notice, because we're so used to this, is, is Jesus is talking about what happens in heaven when a sinner comes home. What happens in heaven when the lost are found. As if it wasn't scandalous enough that he's, that he's kind of dissing religion and righteous people of the day, he's also telling them what happens in heaven when a lost sheep is found. When the, when the far-off person comes home, he's telling them what happens in heaven, which is a little bit scandalous because that's implying that what? He's been there. This is radical crazy talk. You know what happens in heaven when, you know, what if I said I came in here and I was like, hey, you know what happens in heaven when we sing that second song? This is exactly what happens in heaven when we sing that song. I'd be like, I think you've lost it. And yet Jesus is saying exactly that. There's rejoicing in heaven when the lost are found. We don't describe places we've never been. 
Jesus says there's rejoicing. The angels of God in heaven, they rejoice. So he's telling us two things even in that statement. He's saying, one, I am from heaven, which should be underlined in all caps with exclamation points behind it. I am from heaven. I come from a community where the greatest joy is in the lost being found. That's the community I come from, and here I am with you. And he says, two, I'm here to teach you that the greatest joy you can find is in making earth more like heaven. Because you, know you know what heaven does when earth becomes more like heaven? Heaven rejoices. Like they get a little bit closer together, and there's joy in heaven when earth begins to look a little bit more like it. I'm originally from Texas. I'm sorry. Imagine if I had moved here and, and I had said that I was coming to Bowling Green to establish the community of Texas in Northwest Ohio. I'm here. I know what Texas is like. I've been there. I'm from there. There's great rejoicing in Texas when you put away the pork and you serve brisket instead. That's what I would say. There's great rejoicing when you take off those sneakers and you put on these cowboy boots. There's great rejoicing in Texas when you do these Texas things. And you guys would say, no, 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 no. We, we got this. Well, I'm here to build the community of Texas. And you can go, yeah, well, we've read books. We've, we've seen the, the shows. We know. We, we got this. And what you would do would be all wrong. I would say, no, no, you need more beef, more breakfast tacos, more boots. You also need a whole lot more traffic and, and some unbearably scalding your face type heat. Like walk out into a, a full-blown hairdryer kind of heat when you come out of the store and you just go, oh gosh, get to go back in. And then if you had those things, I'd say, yeah, yeah, no, now, now you're building the community of, of Texas here in Northwest Ohio. But, but you, you would need someone from there to tell you the authentic way that it works. Because if you tried to do it on your own with some good guesses and, oh gosh, I'd rather do it this way and it is too hot there, let's keep our summers. You wouldn't actually be building that, would you? Jesus is coming to earth and saying, this is how it's supposed to look. Too often, like the Pharisees, we say, no, 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 we, we got this. We know how it's supposed to look. Oh, that sounds hard. I don't want to do that part. Let's do this one, that one. Ooh, the fellowship and eating thing sounds good. Let's do that. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's do Jesus welcomes us and eats with us. Let's do that. And then we say, that's, that's what, we're building that community here. And Jesus looks at it and goes, no, no, no. No, that's, that's the inside of the cup still dirty. You've got to do the whole thing. Jesus is saying, I'm from there. Trust me. So we have to start listening to Christ when we build the community of heaven here instead of reading the travel guide and just sort of faking it as we go. So there's two keys to this, two keys to this missional living. The first key is we have to embody our new identity, embody our new identity. Are we creating heaven on earth in the way Jesus did? So too often, the modern church is perceived as, as religious people. Religious people who claim to know the right answers and try to keep hands clean. If you are part of the modern church, if you say, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, this is how you are perceived. Not just by people that are far off and, and don't know anything, probably by the people in the, in the seat next to you. This is the, the modern perception of Christianity amongst Christians and others. People who generally try to do the right things, claim to know the right answers, and, and try to stay out of the kind of the ugly sins, the ones on that list that we all know of. We embrace Jesus, but more often than not, when we take a deep breath and we look at our lives, we're not embodying him. And so the world says, hypocrites. And we go, wow, that's not really fair. But it's real. 
Social media has made this more acute that, that Christians have the ability now to be Christians, and then online we can go on and play kind of spiritual whack-a-mole, where we hide behind our little digital wall, and then when we see something we don't like, we come out and we hit it, and we slink back. Don't build relationship, but I'm not going to let that there. I'm going to make sure I comment on that. I like the other ones that agree with me, and then I did my job. And that, that doesn't help us, because guess what? Every time that someone else fails, every time a prominent politician who espouses a biblical worldview fails, they go, see, just like us. Every time a pastor, another article comes out, and there's too many every week. Every time a pastor fails doing the same things he was telling his congregation not to do, everybody goes, see, they're all a bunch of lies. It's in relationship that it changes. What we end up doing is we look like, remember, let's date ourselves here, anybody who remembers this. Remember before there was the internet, okay? Let's start there. When you would go to the, when you'd go to the movies, or you heard there was a movie and you didn't get to see it, you had to wait for it to come out to, like, rent it. These things called tapes, okay? But sometimes, if you were in a certain household that didn't rent those tapes, or if the movie, if you were a kid, like in the 80s, and you were a young kid and you wanted to see that movie, but it was a rated R movie, and you couldn't see the rated R movies yet, you had to wait for it to come to television. Because once it got to television, what do they do? Oh, they scrubbed it clean, didn't they? And you would see an R-rated movie come on, and every other word is changed, and the lips don't quite match up, and the explosion didn't happen, and where's the, t- where's the decapitation scene? That's what I heard my friends told me about that scene. And it didn't exist, and you're like, this is very interesting. You end up watching, and, and you know, the guys, their lips don't match, and the, you son of an onion, and you're like, wait, wait, what? I don't think people say that, but over and over, they just scrubbed it and edited it, and it ended up being kind of a different movie. Like, the integrity of the whole thing was gone when you watched the R-rated movie on the ABC Family Hour or whatever. I remember watching the Blues Brothers after I'd seen the, uh, the real version, and I watched it online, and it was like a different movie. And the people who laugh when I say Blues Brothers are knowing, they just start cataloging the scene. The scene with the nun who's slapping the Blues Brothers, there are a lot of swear words in that. And maybe it's better that it was clean on TV, but that's a whole different scene. We need to know that there's a perception that that's that's what we're like. We're like the movie that really is R-rated, but we've just kind of scrubbed it clean so everybody can see the clean version. And yet if you read the lips, it's the same word it was when, when you saw it in the theater. And as believers, as followers of Christ who are um, already saved and yet not yet there, we got to get honest about who we are, that we are still Um, wildly imperfect people that are included in the perfect grace of Christ. And so scrubbing the outside over and over and over only leads those outside of us to realize that they're probably just like me. Jesus is basically accusing us of identity incongruence. Where the thing that we say we are doesn't quite match up with who we really are. And what we really are is lost people that have been found. What we really are is unworthy people who were still welcomed in to the family of God. And so we have to learn how to acknowledge our imperfection and rest in Jesus' perfect life. And that's a, that's a tightrope to walk. But the reality is we get a new identity, and with our new identity, we get a new reframed history. We get a reframed history. So it isn't that I didn't do the things before I knew Christ, but it's just that reframed in history, I have a different story to tell. My testimony is not, I was reborn on this day and I've been good ever since. My testimony is I was a train wreck. 
and I was a relational piece of dynamite that would just walk into one room after another and just blow things up. And then I walked into the room with Christ, and I tried that, and he laughed, and he said, no, 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 you're coming with me. And am I, am I perfect? Have I figured it all out? Have I gotten rid of all the old habits? No. But I'm included in his perfection, and so now I live with great freedom. Jesus reminds us we are sinners set free who are to use our lives to see other sinners set free. We're sinners set free, called to use our lives to see other sinners set free. Humility becomes the antidote to hypocrisy. The second we believe the hype, that we got it all together, we're in trouble. Humility becomes the antidote to hypocrisy. It's an identity shift. For example, when we moved here, we were, uh, we were really, in a, a very real sense, Texans abroad. This is a brave new world. Thanks to the goodness of the Bowling Green State University football program, who brought 70,000 Texans with them when they hired a new coach, was you hired a new pastor, um, we all of a sudden had all these people who knew what we were going through, and we had this little, we had our community of Texas and Northwest Ohio. It wasn't about money or their politics or denomination they came from. It wasn't about what neighborhood they lived in back home. It wasn't, a, it wasn't about any of that. It was that they couldn't find a decent taco either. <laughs> they didn't know when to shovel the driveway and when to just let it melt. Ask Tim Butler how many times I've texted him. Is this one of those ones where you let it melt or do I shovel this? And I feel about this big when I'm asking, but I got to ask because I don't know. And he'll tell me, well, it's going to warm up, you genius. You just, there's this thing called the sun. I don't know. Closest we ever got to snow was a, like snow cone at the fair. That was like, oh, you dropped some. What was revealed in those early months is that while we were embracing living here, we hadn't yet embodied life as Ohioans. We were still the old. We were becoming, but it, we hadn't picked it up yet. And slowly, as we walked that sanctification journey of Northwest Ohio, we found ourselves and our identity shifting. So much so that I will be honest with you, this summer, traveling a bit in New York City and Chicago, people would say, oh, where are you visiting from? I said, Bowling Green, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, oh, how is it there? And I tell them, it is the greatest, flattest, swampiest paradise on earth. What, what, what it was, as I explained to them that we have more pizza places per capita than any place on earth, is our new identity was taking hold. That, that we were letting go of the old and taking on the new, that we were, we were finally adopting the thing that had adopted us. We were finally adopting the identity that had first adopted us. As followers of Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God, and yet it still requires that you buy into that adoption. That you begin to adopt the one who first adopted you, that you begin to embody the family that first called you in. Every day as followers of Christ is another opportunity to take a step forward in that. Which is why imperfect people are always welcome because none of us have reached perfection. And so whether this is day one of my, of my walk with Christ or this is a hundred years in, there's still something I can grow in in embracing and embodying deeply this, this identity that God has given me as his son or as his daughter. 
So key number one, move from embracing to embodying our new identity. Key number two, we have to begin to cultivate missional relationships. We have to cultivate missional relationships. I'm going to read this this next thing twice because I don't want to miss it. Evangelism is not fundamentally a series of facts and doctrines that we use to convince others of certain beliefs, but an invitation to fellowship with the creator and the community of heaven here on earth. Read it again because we don't want to miss it. Evangelism is not fundamentally, fundamentally, there's pieces of it, a series of facts and doctrines we use to convince others of certain beliefs. This is not a head-to-head thing. It's an invitation to fellowship with the creator in the community of heaven here on earth. It's an invitation to relationship. Evangelism is an invitation to relationship every time. Now, with unsound doctrine, is that going to be a wrong invitation? Probably. So we're not dismissing that. But we are saying, fundamentally, when God calls us to go and make disciples, when God calls us to go and reach the lost, when God calls us to be about those who are far from him, what he's asking us to do is not convince them that we're right, but invite them into relationship and community. Invite them into our imperfection and show them where perfection comes from. And that's a hard thing to grasp because as Westerners, we learn, 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 and do. And the Bible is saying, do so as to learn. And we think we need to convince someone, we need to get them on point A, B, C, D, E, and F, and then they can join the club. And what the Bible is saying, invite the person in and let them enjoy the same sanctification journey that you enjoyed. Let them enjoy the same thing that says when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, you will be belief and there will be eternal salvation granted upon you. And then from there, you will grow step by step like infant to grown person. But we get hung up in this Western way of we got to get the whole thing right and I got to have a conversation. I got to make sure I have all my points in order. I was talking last week with somebody who was like, lamenting that uh, they missed an evangelism opportunity. My heart went out to him because this is what we've taught people. As they were talking with someone who probably doesn't know Jesus and it's pretty apparent that they're, they're a lost sheep. And the person tells me, I think I just missed my chance because I, I think I was able, I, I could have said, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. I could have said that, but I just missed my, my opportunity. And I says, I think your opportunity is to build relationships with this person and let them see an embodied life of Christ so that they know that it's real. Because their perception of who you are, if you would have said, I'm a Christian, their perception of who you are is going to be colored by all the things they've read about, they've heard about, the person who wronged them years ago, the hypocrite that they knew that lived down the street, the person knocking on their door Saturday during dinner time, inviting them to try this new way of life and hear some pamphlets from them. That's what they think of. So if you want to join that crowd, just spout some stuff and run. We can build a Bible launcher and just fire it at people if we want to and see what happens. We'll take that t-shirt gun from the football games and we'll just load it with New Testaments and just fire them into the crowd and we'll see what happens. Or, or we invite people into the community of heaven that we're building here. We invite people to see what it looks like to struggle still, what it looks like to be a saint who can't quite kick all the sin, but is still absolutely approved by God. We invite them into a place where imperfect is normal. And perfect, we don't believe in that. There's one source of perfection, and we rest in that, and we're included in that, and we're saved through that, and we're becoming more like that every day as we grow. Man, if you're waiting for me to be the first one to to make the leap and be perfect, you're going to be waiting a while. We all have a long way to go. It's an invitation to a new identity. It's not a doctrine path. 
There will be time for that during membership class. That's a church joke. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Connect that. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Last week we talked about heavenly hospitality. This man welcomes sinners. Step one. This week, step two, and he eats with them. Not only is he welcoming and offering a hand, but his intention is not to simply welcome and pass through, not to wipe your hand off after they get it dirty. The the invitation is to come sit and eat. What is more intimate in your world than sitting down with your family to eat dinner? Someone gets to see all your flaws then, right? I told them my kids were really well behaved, but that one just threw Brussels sprouts against the wall. And I told them I was a really good cook, but this came out way drier than I thought it would. And yeah, we, we were going to pick up that room, I promise, but you know, some things, all of a sudden, everything you have is kind of laid bare. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus invites them into intimate relationship where you will get to know each other. We call our little slice of the community of heaven Covenant Church. This is our slice We put it on the wall because we mean it. We ruthlessly seek to know Jesus, to learn him, to sit with him, to study his character, to pray. And then we ruthlessly seek to make him known. Share our lives and our dinner tables and our church chairs with the lost and the lonely and the down and out and addicted. And even the people who look like they have it all together, but deep inside like an unwashed cup, they got the same junk you and I have. And we invite people, not because we're superior to them or because we pity them or because, because they have more need than we have. We invite them because we are them. We invite them because they are us. Remember, our humility is in our remembrance of who we once were before God called us into his family. Our humility is remembering that I was once lost and then became found, and then I can connect the dots to the thousand different people who planted seeds, the thousand different people who loved me when it wasn't easy, the thousand different people who gave grace when it was easier to give judgment. And I can track that back, and I can say, I hope one day in heaven they all get the gold star. It wasn't easy to love me. It wasn't easy to be around. I wasn't um, somebody that was like a real relational uh, funhouse. blew up one after another, destruction after destruction after destruction after destruction. And I got through with college. And people would say, oh, well, you know, you didn't have a ton of friendships out of high school and college just because you're, you're a little more on the introverted side, right? And I'd, I would say, yes, absolutely, that's what it is. And that's a lie. I didn't have relationships coming out of high school and college because I had blown every one of them up and then burned the bridge and then nuked the ashes. Because that's who I was. And yet while I was doing that, people were breathing grace. While I was doing that, people were planting seeds. While I was doing that, people were having me at their dinner table with their children. Saying this is what the community of faith looks like. This is what the slice of heaven could be like. This is what it would look like. And as belief stirred in my heart... I began to sense this new identity was a reality for me too. And that maybe I could do that for other people. And even though I'm not perfect, yeah, let's do it. I'm a son of an onion too. 
I don't want to convince someone that I'm right. That's not what evangelism is. That's not what missional living is. It's convincing them that I'm right so that I'll feel better and affirmed about what I believe. It's about inviting people to know Jesus in this radical community of love and grace. It's inviting people to exchange an identity. What was old can be made new. It's about wanting people to see freedom in Christ and experience it. That even in our wild perfection, we are included in his perfection. And we're set free to then go and in wildly different ways engage a culture that is desperate for something that matters. One of my favorite evangelism hotspots. I didn't tell this person I'm going to say it, so brace yourself. Could be you. One of my favorite stories of somebody who's going out intentionally making relationships from our church into our city is Betty Winslow. Betty, we'll call her an empty nester. Is that fair? That's fair. And Betty is at Howard's in the club downtown at hours that I can't even imagine being awake during. So she can build relationship with the bartenders, with a young woman who are vulnerable, who are working hard, who got a lot going against them, who have new problems every week, so that as time goes, she's not just this weird person who showed up once and was kind of leaning on the bar and it's 3 a.m. and we don't know what you're doing here. She's a consistent force of grace and goodness and love and hope in their lives. So guess whose phone rings when they hit crisis? Yeah. That's what this looks like. That's what an invitation into the community of heaven is. Do you think they're going to have spiritual conversations? I bet they do. I bet they have. But I bet it's so feathered. She put the, the Bible gun away and she said, I will just show you. Let me embody what Jesus looks like as best I can. And it's not going to be perfect, but I'll do my best. And then God just uses that to flip the light switch on for people to go, whoa, that's real. It isn't what I saw on TV. It isn't what I read about in that. It isn't, it isn't what my friend said it was. That's real. There's no obligation in that for her. There's no, it's an overflow. It's an overflow of love. It's something she likes to do anyway. She just has a good excuse to go and be Jesus to people. What is your passion point? What's the thing that you love to do anyway? You like watching football? You like quilting? You like music? You like frisbee golf? It doesn't matter. Build intentional, cultivate intentional relationships in that space. Not, you don't have to be weird about it. I'm starting a Christian Frisbee golf club. <laughs> Imperfect people welcome, you know, like, that's not going to work. There's multiple coffee shops in town, and as you know, we've been under construction. I have no office. And so I have the option of, of meeting random places all over the city. And there's multiple coffee shops in town. One of them is uh, decidedly Christian. The owner is Christian. The Baristas are Christians. 90% of the people working there are pastors. I don't know where their offices are, but they seem to like it there. And I have some meetings there. I also have meetings in the one across the street that is decidedly unchristian, whose owner's worldview, we would say, is extremely different than mine. Um, their baristas are not Christian. Some of the books on their shelves are also not Christian. Don't look too close. But I choose to go there because where else am I going to meet non-Christian people. And so at times I'll go there, and so now I know that, that Jenica is the 5.30 a.m. barista on Tuesday mornings, and I'm there every Tuesday morning. And after about four weeks, she learned what my drink was, and only then was I able to ask her what her name was. This is slow evangelism. 
And then about three weeks later, I learned that she was going to get married, so she told me she had to warn me, I'll be gone for a few weeks, so you're going to need to give your recipe to the next person because they won't know what you're talking about. But I'm getting married, and I said, oh, that's incredible. Where are you, well, how's this going to work? Where are you going to go? Where is, he, is he here? Does he live here? Are you from here? How's this going? And all of a sudden, we're digging in a little bit. And I don't know what the next question is. I don't know how to, to get further than that, but I know at some point, my goal is that she and her husband are going to be having dinner at my table. And maybe a little weirded out by it. But I'm okay with that. Because I'm going to keep going in there, and if she's working, I'll order something. So I have a two-minute excuse while she makes my drink to get a little bit more in relationship, to show a little bit more love, to give a little bit more grace, to plant one more seed. Our culture is changing in such a way that we have to force our lives into the ways, force our way into the lives of the lost. And it's easy to build a Christian bubble and live in it. But we have a job to do. And wherever that is for you, however you find your way into the path of people who need grace and hope in their life, find that. Before long, we'll have a second service. It looks inevitable. If we look around, there are fewer seats this week than there were last week. And there will be fewer seats next week than there were this week. And when we finish that foyer, maybe everybody will stay out there and we'll have some extra seats. But <laughs> why? But why have a second service? Because you can't invite someone to eat with you if there's no room at your table. And you've been faithful to invite people to eat with you in this community of heaven, to invite people to share in this journey of faith. And if people go, this is real, then they stay. And they're going to invite someone to eat at this table. So we've got to have a bigger table. Or we're just going to eat twice on a Sunday morning is eventually probably what that looks like. But it's not about getting more people to show up here. It's about getting us to show up more in their lives. It's less about them showing up at church as it is about us showing up in their lives. And Jesus says this will bring joy. So in the passage, five times there will be joy, rejoicing, joy, rejoicing, joy. There is joy in heaven for a sinner who's found. Challenge for us is this. Is that true of our hearts? If we are to make earth more like heaven, then our hearts must begin to resemble that same yearning that lost people would be found. That the aching and the yearning and the hurting would be made whole. So the question for you is who is eating at your table? Who are the lost sheep in your life? Can you name three people that you know and have some sliver of relationship with that need grace in their life? Why do I say three? You knew this was coming. Because on your chair, there is a card and has three little spaces next to three little human profile silhouette things. I got three names on mine. A neighbor, a barista, and someone else's neighbor that I'm tangentially connected to but have talked to twice. And I'm looking for any opportunity I have to take these three people and drive a little bit deeper into the, the realm of grace. Your challenge is, do you know those people? If you don't, then let's start meeting those people. If you do know those people, then is this getting taped to your rearview mirror? Is this getting taped to your bathroom mirror? Is this getting taped? And then tape it to the front of your cell phone so when you wake up in the morning and you want to check Facebook, you have to, you stupid card, and you have to look at it and go, who are these people? Do whatever you have to do. We should be praying for access for these people, praying for relationship with these people, and praying that they might know what we know about what it is to be free. 
pray for a chance to share a meal. Pray that to finish where we started, that we would get a chance to kind of put our hands in the dough of life with them, to cook with them and get messy with them and, and just see what it's all like. So the first thing we would pray for is that the joy of heaven would be our joy. God, give me a passion for those who don't know you. And then who am I praying to put in the open seat next to me at church, to put on my back deck on a Thursday night so we can have a long conversation? Who am I praying for? May we be uh, a community of people that are truly humble and grateful and that are generous with what's been given to us. May we be people who see ourselves as sinners set free for the purpose of seeing sinners set free. May we be people who are dead set to build the city of God in the city of Bowling Green. So you have two cards. You have the one card that says, I know some people that need Jesus. I'm going to write them down and I'm going to start praying for them and God is going to show me opportunities. There's other cards. A little bit less instruction on these. This is when you meet that really nice waitress and she does a great job and you had good banter and you don't know how to actually invite her to something. You don't know how to give her and you go, oh. And on the back you can say, our community group meets Thursdays at 7. Here's the address. Here's our phone number if you want to call us. Feel free. It's an easy way to make that invitation so that we want you to have every tool possible in your tool belt so that as life comes at you, you always have a chance to respond. So that's what those are for. Ultimately, they will be used as much as our heart yearns for them to be used. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, what you've done for us. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for the hope that you've given us, the grace that you've uh, washed us in. Father, our prayer first and foremost is that we would be a people whose passions would align with yours, that we would look more like you every day, and that we would see this not as a closed kingdom, but God, that we would uh, stand at the open gate of heaven, the gate of grace and mercy and freedom in your son, that we would stand at that gate and we would shovel people in. Father, may our lives be such that people see you in us. May our hearts be such that we are not simply living so as to stay safe, but that we are living to see others set free. God, give us passion, give us courage, and give us more of you. Pray in your son's name. Amen. As we do every Sunday, we have a chance to take communion. And on your table, you will find bread.